Welcome, bienvenidos. I'm Danny Torres, host of the Talking 21 podcast and part of the Our Esquina Podcast Network. He was born in Pinal de Cuba in 1938. But prior to Antonio Oliva's arrival in the U.S., he worked on a family farm, una finca, with his siblings, and yet the life of a hardworking farmer would not be in his future plans. Thanks to his beloved father, there would be another love, otro amor, baseball. And little did he know, he would become one of the greatest baseball players ever, un gran pelotero of his generation. His stats were quite impressive. This eight-time all-star right fielder designated hitter was a lifetime, imagine that, 304. He was a 1964 American League Rookie of the Year, a three-time American League batting champion, led the American League in hits five times, and even won a Gold Glove Award in 1966, the year that I was born. But during his playing days in the Twin Cities, if there was a Heart and Hustle Award, a Marvin Miller Man of the Year Award, Tony would have easily won those accolades because he truly personified extraordinary performance on the field and contributions to his community to inspire others. And it was 20 years ago over the phone, I actually interviewed Tony Oliva for one of my very first stories as a freelance sports journalist. And I'll never forget listening to his voicemail as he returned my call to set up a convenient time to speak. That's the Twins legend, una leyenda, I will always remember. Now, 20 years later, once again, here's my one-on-one -on -one conversation with another great one, Tony Oliva. Well, Tony, what can I say? You're finally with us on the Talking 21 podcast, but before we begin, I got a few questions for you, maybe even more than a few questions, but I wanna thank your lovely daughter, Anita who arranged this Zoom virtual conference. And this would not have happened if Anita did not help us out. So please, Tony, extend to Anita. Mil gracias. Thank you very much for helping us out. Well, she listens right now and she's beside me. Uh, in case if I need an interpreter, uh, but she's right here, you know, and she listens what you have to say. <laughs> very good, very good. Well, Tony, the one thing I wanted to ask first and foremost for our listeners, for the Talking 21 podcast listeners, because Tony, this podcast, Talking 21, is dedicated to someone you knew very well, Roberto Clemente. And interesting enough, before we end up talking about Roberto, I want to talk about Tony's life, Tony's uh, legacy throughout Major League Baseball, specifically with the Minnesota Twins. But Tony, talk to me about the Cuba of your childhood and the Cuba of today, that beautiful island in the Caribbean. Well, you're right. Uh, you hit it right in the morning. Cuba is a beautiful, beautiful island. It's still, you know, I, I miss to spend more time in Cuba. Uh, like uh, I, uh, I don't was able to back there in the last two years because of the Pandemic, pandemic, you know. Uh, uh, but uh, I used to go to Cuba and visit my family every year. So I have a lot of family in Cuba. I have five brothers and sisters um, still living in Cuba. 
I have a brother here in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And uh, uh, what can I say? I, I miss very much to go over there because of what was happening lately. But I remember growing up in Cuba when big, big family, you know, I, we got, I got a five sister and four, uh, four brothers. Uh, and uh, we live in the country. Uh, we used to have a farm. And this is why I learned to play uh, baseball. Uh, I have the opportunity to uh, go and, and practice with my brothers and, and a few friends who live in the farm. After uh, I come from school, uh, my habit was play baseball or work in the farm. Baseball for me was not really because uh, why say Cuban, uh, almost everybody played baseball since they were uh, a little kid. I, I, I know what's different. Uh, I enjoyed the game. I loved the game. Since I was five, six years old, I think I was playing uh, with my brothers and friends and, and dreaming to play baseball and play baseball someday uh, in one of those things in Cuba. Uh, I never thinking or never dreaming that I come to I would come to the United States and play baseball because, because I like I, I grew up in the farm in, in, in Cuba and you know what's the opportunity for the scout to see me uh, and play baseball thinking my chance to play baseball and play professional baseball was very very slim I was a lock very lucky I thank you God every day for this uh, big opportunity. Yeah, thank you, Fernandez Tapenis, uh, who uh, live in Los Palacios, and he played baseball here in the United States. And he see me play only a couple of times. And he asked me if I like to play professional. Uh, I don't know what was professional me. I never have the opportunity to see a game in Havana with all this uh, winter baseball league and uh, good baseball players, Cuban ball players, and some American ball players in those days, they used to go to Cuba and play. Um, how uh, I listened in the radio, but I never saw any professional balls. Except when I, just, uh, when I started playing Los Palacios, Fernandez Tapen, they used to bring a team from Havana. It's some of those teams that bring some professional ball players who play here at Class A. If we play in the United States, Class A and double A ball, yeah, I tell myself, if those guys are professional, I think I'll be able to play professional too, you know? It's interesting that you say this, and it's amazing to hear your journey, specifically the perspective that you have, the interest growing up on a farm, a huge family, the love of the game. But there's someone in this history that I think it's important to mention and that's Papa Joe. Who was Papa Joe? Tony Oliva shared why this pioneer and legendary scout impacted his life and the lives of over 400 ball players he signed, including Oliva, to eventually play professionally in the US. So for our listeners, can you tell me a bit about that renowned scout who signed a future rookie of the year, 1964, Tony Oliva? When, you know, that's a job. Uh, uh, everybody used to call uh, Joe Papa Joe because Papa Joe was a scout 
from Washington senators who were living in Cuba and signed many, 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 many Cuban ball players. Joe Cambria, the Twins' big scout in Cuba, signed Tony Oliva to his first contract, bringing him to the United States. Joe Cambria signed over 400 individuals from outside the United States, people that became common names with the Minnesota Twins. Camilo Pasquale, Zoilo Versalles, Julio Becker, Pedro Ramos. When Joe Cambria signed a player and brought him to America, he made sure that they had spending money and were in a situation because language would be the barrier that they would have the best chance of succeeding. To this day, Tony Oliva gives Joe Cambria all of the credit for having the faith in him, bringing him to America, and helping him become the player and person he became. Well, he, he used to sign everybody and go to Washington Senate. Uh, Washington Senate, uh, like it was a big franchise for Cuban ball players. Uh, when I came into the United States, we have about 35 or 40 uh, Cuban ball players play for Washington Senator Organization and later Central Minnesota Twin Organization. But Fernandez Tapne was the one who taken me to see Joe, Joe Cambria, Papa Joe. Uh, Papa Joe saw me play only one time. I'm not looking too good that day, but uh, I think he thrush uh, Fernandez Tapne. Uh, he saw uh, on me what the scout looking for. Uh, I was able to run good. I got to go on, uh, you know, and I was skinny and tall. Uh, and when I hit the ball, I hit it very hard. And they, they saw all this quality in a short time, and they decided to take a chance with me and sign me. You know, Tony, there's a name, a legendary name. And yes, we've heard the story of the great Mini Minoso, but there's someone else, the legendary El Maestro, Martin Dijigo. What can you tell me growing up when you heard that name, that Baseball Hall of Famer who was inducted in 1977, who played in the Negro Leagues, played in Cuba, played throughout uh, the Caribbean. But what can you tell me about El Maestro? Well, I, I hear, I'd never have the opportunity to saw him play. I never meet him. But everything that I hear from him, uh, from the people and for the professional people who play, uh, they say uh, he was the best. He was uh, uh, one of the best. Uh, they think that he was the best ball player come out from Cuba. Uh, and those days, he got a chance to play. And they say hey, uh, uh, he was untouchable. Uh, uh, in, in he was better that uh, because I have the opportunity to see Minoso play in Cuba a little bit, and um, yeah, hear him here in the United States. For me, uh, Mini Minoso was like a Jackie Robinson for the United States, here for the American people, because Mini Minoso played in the 50s, only, only, only 50s. Uh, and he started play here in the foreign manually. And uh, he played uh, about 12 years in the big league in the 50s. Uh, uh, he got, a, you know, a lot of, a lot of big years. Uh, he made the other style many, many times. 
hacen que se chupe de holofren minuminoso. Uh, por son riso, uh, they never put him in the, in the hall of fame. Uh, I was thinking that he going into the United States, uh, into the hall of fame for a cure. A few years ago, when they decided to get a uh, 16 uh, ball player from the Negro League. Uh, yeah, that, was, uh, two that was in 2006, that special committee was in 2006. In the special committee, it's only was two, but two or three of those guys uh, left alive. Uh, and many Minoso and myself, we were in the cruise in the caravan. Uh, and during that cruise, we stopped in Puerto Rico. Oh, okay. Uh, I congratulations to many Minoso. And I said, many, this is the years that you go for sure because of him. Uh, uh, he, you know, he got a great numbers and, and they go get a 16, 16 or 17 all at the same time. Yeah, I think he go for sure, but he was short. They don't have a chance. He, he, he never indulged him. You made your debut in 1962, almost 50 years ago. Tony, please, for our listeners, share a little bit about the first few years. I believe you only played 16 games in 62 and 63. And then, of course, your rookie season, where you, um, and rightfully so, the type of numbers that you put up in 64. But talk about when you heard the news that you were going to play Major League Baseball for the very first time. Well, this, uh, that was uh, very exciting because I was in, uh, I played Class A ball. I was uh, uh, playing Charlotte and I uh, have a great year. I hit at 350. And in those days, in that league, it was a very, very strongly, and uh, I remember that some of the ball players they come out to me and the manager and say, Congratulations, you're going to the big league. Hey, hey, that was my second year in profession. Uh, big, big, was a big surprise for me. I don't know, I don't have any idea. I go to the big league from class A to the big league, and the funny part was they put me to play right away. and. Uh, 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 and uh, and uh, hey, I get to the big league. There was uh, so solo inside. So Camilo Pascual, Phil Ram, that helped me to be there with all those guys. But Hamon Kilibru was there. Bobby Alice was there. I said, what I'm doing here with all those big guys? You know what I mean? Those are big league. I don't have any idea what I was doing. But uh, that was a very, very exciting moment. When I went inside the clubhouse, I remember the Julio Becker, he took me in and threw me to the, the manager and, you know, take me to see Soilo and Camilo and, and uh, you know, Kilibru and Alice. You see my eyes was big, I was nervous, you know, very nervous, you know. And I, I, I look at them and I say, I belong here. I was scared to be inside wow. that clubhouse. <laughs> October 12th, Tony, you were in New York City, October 12th, 1963. You were part of something that was so special that I wish we would be able to even celebrate this particular game. It was the final game in the Polo Grounds. And this was your first time in New York City. What are you, you know, what are your recollections of that particular game? Because guess what, Tony? I heard they only paid the, the players $175. I mean, come on. The type of players that you had in that all-star game, 
I mean, that's crazy. That was literally like a who's who. Tony Oliva, Roberto, Felix Mantilla. I mean, that was a who's who. Tell me about your memories of that game. Well, a big memory, uh, and that I never forget it because I met some people there that I never forgot it. Uh, I become like a very close friend, I, like a brother. Like Orlando uh, Cepeda was there. I, I was Orlando, uh, you know, uh, Mantilla was there. Clemente, all those big, big guys was there. Juan Marichal, don't Juan forget Marichal Juan Marichal. Was, Juan Marichal was there. Soilo uh, was there with me. And Julio Becker was there. It was I was the only one that was, uh, you know, I was from, uh, I finished uh, that year, I finished the big league. I played triple A that year, I finished the big league. And they invited me to go to the, to the uh, that that other star game. It was like an other star game in, in for, for ground. And uh, when I was there, and they told me about everything about the stadium, uh, I can be, I can believe it. I was there on that group of people, you know. Yeah. Uh, and to think, and to think that was the last game at the Polo Grounds. In the Polo Grounds, that was the last, the last game. From there, I went to Puerto Rico and played that year, you know, the Winter Baseball League. But uh, that was uh, that was something that, that the people used to do. Um, they have the all-timers all games, and after that, we did it for a few years, all-time games. Now they don't do that anymore. I wish yeah. They need to bring that stuff back. You know, your success, Tony, I mean, I mean, let's listen. You can go to Baseball Reference, and you can see it. Your rookie season was quite impressive, officially, in 1964. I mean, an unbelievable batting average, 323, 217 hits, 109 runs, 43 doubles what pitcher if you can you know kind of go back in time what pitcher did you really anytime they were on the mound you maybe even had a smirk on your face that you knew you were going to hit this pitcher well or was there a particular team that you faced that again especially in that rookie season that you really played well against well I, that that uh, i tell you that year was like like a dream year um i don't care say one one pitcher or one team because I hit everybody that year. And, uh, <laughs> you know, listen, hit, you said it right. Come yeah, on, you're gonna be. No, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, uh, uh, it's funny because the better was the team and the better was the pitches. I think I hit it better. Uh, I hit better the veteran pitches that the rookies uh, pitch because. I think I have a chance to see them, the, although all those good pitches, I see them three or four times in the ball game. But, uh, you know, I, I love to play in New York, you know. Uh, New York was a good, good play for me. Chicago, you know, it's a big ball for, you know. Uh, but I, I was very successful in, in those places, you know. But uh, I like Boston. Uh, I remember Boston, I hit the ball in Boston all over, but it's already well. I think of all those big things, you know. Uh, since I was rookie, I think I think that um, I was blessing. I think with uh, my attitude, because in those days the people used to throw to you, especially when you were rookie. I think I leave I, I, I leave it more in the uh, you know in the ground. I spend more time in the ground to stand up because every time Kilibru hit him wrong, I was behind. Kilibru they used to throw to me, or every time I come to to hit. 
many times the 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 duck me down. I remember one time I got a hit right there in the head. Oh my gosh! In the hammer in Baltimore, uh, and the 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 hit right there in the TC, right in the hammer. Yeah, went yeah went to the hospital for two days. Really, really, wow, wow. What it with Tony? Was it a concussion? Did you have a concussion or a severe bruise? What what was it? I got a severe headache for a long time, but in those days, no concussion. Now there's no insistence. You know, <laughs> I used to, you used to go to the ballpark and the training. You know, they stretch your 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 neck and your head and they go back. Go it. back out there. Go back <laughs> out there. <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. I know here. I know here about that concussion thing. Yeah, uh, I think that, uh, that word came. That word came many years later. No, that's coming now, you know, the last a few years. <laughs> because I remember having one time, I was in, in, in 1966, uh, I was in a, in a car accident. I got a hit. I got it like, a, uh, no concussion, but those days they used to call whip class. Yeah, well, you have a lot of headache, a lot of, you know, things. But, but, but Tony, isn't that interesting? You said 1966, 1966. Hey, listen, you still want a gold glove award. Yes, yeah, very proud of us about this job. That's right. Because I remember I come from the worst to the best. And that, yeah. you know, I, I worked very hard. And yeah, no, yeah. And listen, the numbers show it. Listen, eight consecutive All-Star games, three-time American League batting champion. I mean, lifetime, 304 batting average, the, the gold glove that I just brought to your attention. But not only the World Series of 1965, but Tony, let's talk about that 1965 All-Star game. Bottom of the ninth, 6-5 National League. Here's Tony Oliva leading off in the bottom of the ninth against Bob Gibson, who's trying to nail down the win for the National League. There's a base hit in the left center field, an extra base hit, and that'll be the tying run on either second or third. And it's a double for Oliva to start the bottom of the ninth. I have to ask you, Joe, if he had power to the opposite field, and he just showed it. He's got power all over, and uh, Sam Mealy out talking to him now, and I'm sure just going over basic base running plays. He gets the bat on the ball is what he does, and uh, his manager, Mealy, who is a coach at first base, says he'll never go into a slump because he's tough to strike out, and you can't play him any set way, and he just showed it right here by hitting his shot to the opposite field. The term dream team is often referred to as that extraordinary basketball team representing Team USA in the Olympics in 1992. But if we turn the clock back to the 1965 All-Star Game in Minnesota, there was a memorable photo taken of a group of Latin American ballplayers who posed for a picture during batting practice on the field. In that era, these were phenomenal ballplayers who a manager would only dream of having on their team. But for this all-star game, it was Tony Oliva and seven other ballplayers in that photo. He shared a bit about each one, including future Baseball Hall of Famers Juan Marichal and the late Roberto Clemente. And I even asked Tony to share for our listeners his recollection on where he was when he heard about Clemente's passing on New Year's Eve in 1972. I mean, Tony, that photograph, I'm sure when you see that photograph and you think about the eight 
Latinos that played in that All-Star game in your hometown, Minnesota. I mean, I'm just going to go down the list. Share with me a little bit about each of these players. I'm going to start off with our mutual friend. Felix Mantilla, lo quiero tanto. Tell me about Felix Mantilla. Felix, Felix was, uh, uh, he's still living in, in Boston. Yeah, I remember Felix Mantilla. He lived in Okinawa, but he played for Boston. He got a great year. Yeah, Felix Mantilla, great year. You know, a great, great, great person. You know, it's a... Uh, uh, sometimes, you know, I like I, I was a brook, you know, I broke, it was my second year, but uh, I don't have the opportunity to mingle with too many people yet, you know, and uh, for Mantilla was a good player, uh, you know, a good hitter, you know, good hitter, yeah, he can live out the yard anytime, <laughs> a smart hitter too, very smart. <laughs> Cookie Rojas, your, your, your countryman from Cuba. Tell me about oh, Cookie Rojas. I like Cookie, you know, I have the opportunity, you know, Cookie played in the National League most of the time. For the, the last few years, he played in American League. Uh, he, he is a, he's a classic, classic ball player, but I think he's more classic human being. He's a great person. We see a friend, good friends, and he called me sometime, or I call him sometime. Uh, he's the one that, uh, he, he, you know, he spent uh, a lot of years in the National League, a lot of years in American League, and he had a wonderful career. He had a beautiful family, too. Yeah. Okay. You're another one of your countrymen that were in that uh, in that famous picture, the 1965 All-Star Game, Soy, Soylo Versales. Tell me about him. Oh, Soylo. I remember that in 1965. Hey. He was, a, he was a good ball player. From 1965, he was a lot better. He was good. He, I saw him, he bought a left field sometime for a single, and he made it to the double. And he had also to get to the World Series. Plus, he was a little guy, but he hit the ball a long way. Yeah, so he played very hard. Big yeah. Davalillo, he was in that All-Star game too. The Big Davalillo, I remember. That the Valillo have a great, great year. And uh, that year, in uh, the other star game, that year, he was hitting about 350 or 360. But the game, little guy, hit the ball hard, run good, go on. He can play the outfield, man. He can play. He can, hey, don't take any trouble him. He throw you out. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we got another one. Leo Cardenas. Leo. You, you know, Leo. I like that he played in National League only, but later he got a chance to play for Minnesota too. Uh, he great director, great hitter. He got a great year for us. A, a little guy, a lot of power too. Uh, he, you know, he got a good range. He all the time he throw right in the morning. Uh, Leo, we still get in touch sometimes, you know, talk to you know, on the telephone and that. He, he, he wrote a book now the last year. Uh, I saw him has been trying it too. And uh, man, he, he, I got a chance to spend some time here in Minnesota. Uh, and those days too, you see, when we play and uh, we traveling, we used to go to their house or they go to our house uh, after the ball game. We were very uh, big enemy in the field, but after the field, we were very, very, very yeah. close friends. The MVP of that All-Star Game, the great Hall of Famer, Juan Marichal. Well, Juan Marichal was a sneak. 
He got a great, he was a great pitcher, man. He got a good fastball, good curve, very, very high kick, you know, throw for all kinds of angles. You know, he, 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 was a, he was a great pitcher, great pitcher, Juan Marichal. And, and of course, Tony and his podcast is dedicated to this unbelievable baseball player, humanitarian, the great Roberto Clemente. What are your recollections from that 65 All-Star game playing alongside Roberto? Well, you see, that's a, you know, like a, I got all my career in American League. I know that, you know, the only thing was see Clemente was in spring training and it was in the All-Star game because I was lucky to go to All-Star game. I'm playing in spring training and get him too. But I hear everything they, 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 they told me about him. If I have a chance to see, that was the whole truth. Uh, he, he, he was able to do every little thing. He can throw, he can run, he can steal a base, he do everything. A great, 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 great ball player. You know, um, just wanted to ask you, I mean, again, I know, obviously, Clemente played with the Pirates National League team. You played with the Twins. But did you guys ever, ever talk about hitting something along those lines? Or maybe even with one of his teammates, Willie Starge? I mean, National League, Manny Sanguian. But did you ever, guys, you ever get a chance to talk to any of those Pittsburgh Pirate players? No, no, exactly. With Sanguian, yes. With uh, Clemente, I don't have a chance to speak too much about him. He was in the National League. I was in the American League. was in my second year. I, it, it was different. Uh, I think he was on different level than me, you know, because I was on my second years, and uh, we were, you know, I, I meet him uh, in New York, and when we play in the Shabichu game, yeah, the all the all the up the, the All Star game in, in Polo Grounds, yeah, in Polo Grounds, and later when I played for Rico in 1963, uh, in the championship 63, 64, I meet him because in the end, in, in the end of the season, he come out and play a little bit, he play by a month or so. Uh, in Puerto Rico. Yeah, I meet him a couple of times like that. But, but the, the guy I spent more time, it was more, uh, and that uh, there was Orlando Cepeda. Orlando Cepeda and me, we spent a lot of, you know, we spent a lot of time together. And, uh, we know each other a lot more. Yeah. Tony, when you did hear the news, uh, and next year is going to be 50 years uh, when we lost Roberto Clemente, where were you when you heard that news that he had passed away so tragically? You know something? I was in South Dakota. Uh, uh, my wife, uh, and me, and my kid, uh, I got two. Uh, I got a, two little babies in the in those days. We were we went to his car, South Dakota, for Christmas, and uh, and there was a big snowstorm. And we take a, a snowmobile, we went to, we get a snowmobile, it we went from one house to the, the other people's house, it was about a block away. But we take a snowmobile and that, and our, bro, our father-in-law, my father-in-law, they come out and say, hey, I, I this in the news, the one big famous ball players died, uh, died in a plane crash. And the, the guy from Puerto Rico, and he said like that, and um, and for the later, I can't believe it when he said like that. But later, when I saw the news, uh, that was a very hard news to take because uh, 
you know, we know, I know him. Uh, I know he's uh, going to uh, Nicaragua to for the humanitarian, uh, uh, you know, trip. But, but the more important, you know, I know him, I can't believe it, something like that happened. That was a very touched situation for me, my wife, because my wife had a chance to meet him in the Rostock game too, uh, later. Um, but uh, I, I can't believe it, you know, I can't believe it. I keep looking and listening to TV, and the TV came out a few times, I said the news, uh, but some kind of news that you don't want to hear. Sure. You know, there was another teammate, not only who he played with the Twins, but he also in the 70s, in the early 70s, he was teammate of Roberto. And I got a chance to know him well. I told uh, your daughter, Anita, every time I got a chance to see the great Mudcat Grant, he always put a smile on my face. And there was something about Mudcat Grant that you could almost say reminded you about Clemente, the warmth, how genuine he was as a person. He made you feel special every time he was around him. Please, uh, for our listeners, Tony, tell me a little bit more about Mudcat Grant. Maybe there's a funny story that you could share about Mudcat Grant. <laughs> well, Mudcat Grant, like you said, you describe everything beautiful. He was very entertaining person. He was very nice. In 1965, when we won the penny, and we lost in the World Series, he has a wonderful year, a great year for Minnesota Twins. But Moncat, he's not only was a special ball player, he was a special musician too. He can sing, he can play. See, he, I didn't know that. I didn't know that. Yeah, he could sing, you know, a very good thing. And um, right after the season, he got a, 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 a band together, you know, a group. And he got a three girls and two, and he they go and play in bars, and they call <laughs> the 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 mock cat and the kitties. Oh, oh, oh that's pretty cool. <laughs> it was very good, and um, you know he was eighty years old. He still singing and, and perform, and here are my sons, Rick. My son is a professional musician. And, and uh, when Hamon Kilbrew passed away a few years ago, they they singing here in the stadium, they have a ceremony for Kilbrew, and Mokat Grand Thing, and my son played the, uh, the guitar. Uh, you know, I, 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 he got some kind of wonderful attitude and make everybody happy. I have the opportunity to go to visit him uh, a couple of years ago, I went to California, uh, to California and, and saw him. Uh, already he was sick, but the still he got the right attitude, you know, the laughing and calling. Beautiful, and, beautiful um, smile, beautiful smile. Yes, yeah. Yeah, keep it, yeah, keep it calling him uh, every month, every month, month and a half. After not too long ago, after a few days before he died, but all the time he answers the phone and we got a little conversation. And you know, he started get slow, you know? And uh, he passed away about a few months ago. Yeah. You know, um, something occurred last year and I really wanted to know your thoughts, uh, Tony, uh, with regards to the former owner of the Twins, uh, Calvin Griffin. Uh, the statue was removed outside uh, Target Field. Um, remarks that he made 
1978, a long time ago, that um, were deemed racist. Um, I always felt, um, from the standpoint of a player uh, like Tony Oliva, like Rock Rue, players of that gen, like Clemente, Orlando, how do you feel, number one, when you heard what the words were that he had said in 1978, so many years ago, you knew him, you knew him well, but how did Tony react to anything that you saw and experienced that was racist? How did Tony Oliva, uh, in essence, work with that during the time period of the 1960s and early 70s? How did, how did Tony react to things like that? You know, you see, I had to laugh about because, you know, for me, uh, that was a joke. He was playing around because I come from Cuba. In the cities, this is the way it was. You know, they now it's a different era. Uh, in the 50s, I grew up in Cuba. In Cuba, it's the black, white mulatos between, you know, and uh, the people, if you have a money, a lot of money, uh, you have a money. If you don't have a money, you don't have, you don't have a money. I think it all depends. I think in Cuba, uh, as a Cuban, uh, I say I'm not putting not too much attention to that because the, the, I remember the white Cuban, they, they tell the people, hey, Negrito. Uh, we tell them Blanquito, however. Uh, and the, the, the Cuba, the mulatos sometimes tell the, the black who was black, black, he said, we don't know, we know this thing. You know what I mean? They joke about it. I see when Kevin Griffith said that remark, or they say like that, the only person that I think he know exactly what I mean is him. If I tell, uh, if I tell you know, he was raised, well, this is the way in the city, the people, and you know, I tell you, like, in the, I, I, you know, I 83. I was I, I born in, in 38. I think when I start getting knowledge, the life, I was in the 40s, in the 50s. This is the way it used to be. And uh, uh, I don't pay no, no attention uh, to much like that. Now, when I come here to the United States and the cities, uh, it was a little bit different than I was in Cuba. In Cuba, there was a lot of places, places that the black people not can go into. I think there was, I don't know, you can call race if you want to. If you have a, a, a restaurant or a nightclub, where you say only white people can go here. But there used to be place where they say only black people can go. You know, but if you're white, you can go there too if you want to. Because the white can go, can go they hit it both ways if they want to ask as a black, after the white. The black sometimes they don't, you know, they're not allowed to do it. But uh, here in the cities, uh, when we in, uh, here in Minneapolis, in Minneapolis, I live in Minneapolis, I never experienced nothing in Minneapolis. Now, I experienced in different parts of the country that we had to stay in the black neighborhood, or we stay in the black hotel, or we go to. Uh, different restaurants, something like that. I experienced that here all over, except in Minnesota. You know, 
But when we play in Florida, when we play in Florida, uh, we in Orlando we stay in different hotel. We go to to uh, to Miami where half of us are Spanish, but we go over there. We stay. We had to stay in different hotel or we go to different restaurant and this thing. Think of you. Start think about uh, about that. That you go only choose one person because we say something like what the make he make it. In those days, 50% of people used to say the same thing or do the same thing. When they don't allow, allow you to go inside any of those places. I think, like what I say, I think I have a special attitude for me that if you don't want me in your place, I don't go. And that was for me, that wasn't the rules and regulations. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah. for, for what happened to Captain Griff, I feel bad about. Uh, I know I don't can do another. Well, 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 pretty much what I'm getting, Tony, is that's just not the man that you knew. No, he wasn't. You see, for me, for Soyo Versailles and some of those uh, Julio Becker, some of those guys, I don't know about the American uh, players uh, feel about that they're black Americans, something like that, because. You know, those days they were so, so in common, so common that you see this thing happen. I think I don't take a one, one person like Captain uh, Griffith, he did a lot of, lot of wonderful things for everybody. He did a lot of wonderful things for black ball players too. Every time some black ball player need anything, the dog was open. Uh, he tried to help, you know, because I know he helped a lot of those guys who play for him. And they're black too. I now when they put the statue, the statue there, I was very happy about when later they removed the statue. They went on, you know, they asked me, I just this is the way I tell you, I feel bad. Sure, about sure. no, no. And, and listen, it's, and it's, you know, and I appreciate you, Tony being honest you knew the man so you know you definitely have conveyed that uh, that message through our podcast you know i want to switch up the topic now tony because something that i've seen pictures of you uh on the internet looking at stuff on youtube you really seem to enjoy being in the broadcast booth but there's a word tony that in 2021 in the last few years the word that starts with the letter a analytics uh Tell me about your thoughts that now that is prevalent throughout Major League Baseball, and how does Tony, the ball player who didn't necessarily hear that term at all, but now in the, a dozen or so years, that it, that's now what's common throughout the game. So let me hear your thoughts on analytics. You see, I can hear, I can hear what I I can't pronounce you that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, the way I feel and I like is, you know, everything changed. It's the new thing. But the steer, the steer for me, the steer, the, the game is the same. The human being try to change the game, try to change the names of the game. I try to practice and do the same, the easy way. I like, for me, the people who play the game, I just see the people who play the game today, 
who started the, the foundation is the people, all the people, American ball players, Spanish ball players, any kind of ball player, they come from middle class family and poor family. Other ball players, they come in the unknown, except two or three now who come from uh, the ball players, they were some of some ball players that have been locked, have been making big money. Everybody comes from poor families, a middle class family, and their wife too. I think I've been baseball 60 years, and not, I never meet a ball player yet, you know, who come from rich family. Because if you are rich, you play baseball while you're eight or 10, 12, 15 years old, but by the time you're 14, you're quick. You're going to learn to, to do the, your, your parents' business. Yeah, but not too many that play baseball. They go ball player, but they don't do it. I think, but right now, they, 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 they want those ball players to feel so good about. They, 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 they steer the, the young players, but it's like if you're a missionary, rich people. You go to the manual right now, and, and the way that's, those ball players, they have to play hard. They have to work hard to get to the big league. For they got so easy. You know, I think I think maybe they, we spoiled them maybe because everything is there. Yeah. yeah. Everything is there, you know. So the way, the way you're describing it to me right now, it's almost as if, because you know, you see them grab that card from underneath their cap, grab that card from their back pocket. You're pretty much saying to me, Tony, that you're not allowing the baseball player to learn the game. You're almost like you're giving them all this information. Well, I think you, you, you know, you know, you know, really, you know, use, you know, use your brain, you know how to. But you should too, if you want to be good, you should play the game. You, because the game, if you want to be good, if you want to produce, you have to study the game, the story and the field, a story in the batting case. It's right now, I was there every day. I, you know, I still, I 83, I still work. I think they don't tell me no, it's not different. And 90% of the ball players, they work harder now that, that when I play, they work harder. But I think, but I think the way I practice was the right way. I practice how to hit the breaking ball. It's very important. It's how to hit the fastball. A lot of ball players today, they not want to see they, they, you know, they hit a lot of tea, a lot of salt toss, and by them practicing the machines, and 90% they want to hit only fastball, fastball. This is this a lot of players they struck out today. Yeah, the number, the number, the, the, yeah, the numbers, the numbers are high. Tony, we have a question from our mutual friends, Jeff and Sandy Eisenberg from my hometown, New York City, but they specifically live in Brooklyn. And actually, I'm going to be honest with you. This was Sandy's question, Jeff's wife. If you didn't become a baseball player, is there any other profession or job that Tony Oliva would have wanted to do? If it wasn't baseball, Tony, what would have been that job? Well, I'll tell you one thing. I'd go be honest to you. If I know what's a ball player, if I know being a ball player, 
I stay work in the farm. I like to play baseball on Sunday. Yeah, I got it, you know, because we used to have a farm. We got some cows, pig, animals there, and chicken and all that stuff there. I love the farm. I live here in Minnesota. Uh, yeah, I tell my wife all the time, she know that. Uh, she said, I wish I wish I can live in the farm. I, I wish I can have a farm right now. But I don't like to have a farm in the United States. First of all, here in Minnesota is too cold. Yeah, too cold, yeah, too cold. Yeah, Florida, too, too many snakes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, like cold <laughs> or snakes. I don't want to have no farm in Florida. Oh, listen, hey, or wild boars, like what happened with Johannes Cespedes, right? You want to yeah. stay away from the wild boars, right? <laughs> well, wild boars, listen, you can see them for the snake. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. That's yeah. funny. No, listen, uh, my grandfather in Puerto Rico, he had a farm. And I got a chance to see it up close and there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it. You know, Tony, the last time that you were on the, what is now called, there's these different type of eras in this particular era, the golden days era committee. And the last time that you were up for induction to the baseball hall of fame. And I think Tony, correct me, I believe it was 2014. You missed it by one vote, 75%. You got 11 votes. You needed that. One vote, that sole vote. And I thought about this, Tony, because number one, it's coming up again this December and your name's gonna be on that ballot. But you know, Tony, I know, number one, your beautiful wife, your children, that they're gonna be included in that induction speech. And I really hope, Tony, I really hope, fingers crossed. But there has to have been maybe your former manager, a player, but someone that you played alongside that made Tony a better hitter. Listen, Tony, you were naturally gifted as a hitter. You won that gold glove in 1966. But what players would Tony Oliva would like to also include and mention in that induction speech if it were to happen? Well, you know, I, uh, I have some a lot of great friends. I, I played some very, very, very good players next to me. But I go friends next to me. But you know, like Gene Carr, that guy was a good kid as a pitcher, but what, he, he was a great, a great uh, person. Uh, he helped me a lot because he talked to me a lot. You know, they there there was a, but, but do you know there was a guy in, in the manual league who was really, really, if you know what's for him, I never have the opportunity to play here. This is Rigoberto Mendoza. Mini Mendoza. Uh, he only played in the big league very little bit. He got to the big league in the age when he was about 36 years old. But I mentioned his name too, because when Minnesota twins, my first year, my first year, I was only spent time three days and they cut my water off. They released me. Yes, I went to Charlotte. The, the three, another Cuban, and me, we went to Charlotte to wait in Charlotte to send us back to Cuba. But that was the year, 1961, in April 11, I left Cuba, and April 17 was the invasion, the Peak invasion Cuba. You see, first, no, was no, no fly, no boat, nothing how to come back to Cuba. 
And what they did is they sent me to Charlotte, another three ball players. This way, when they think Cuba get better, to send me back to Cuba. And this is where Mendoza came out. Mendoza was playing for Charlotte. And he, 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 he became a very good friend of mine. He took care of me like if I was his little brother. And he speak on the general manager. Uh, when Charlotte, the general manager, Phil House, I say, I know this kid from Cuba. Can you give him another chance? He want to play ball. He, he like to play ball. Because in those days, the only thing I was worried about was to go back to Cuba. And the people say, hey, he was in the United States for one month or month and a half. He no was able to make. No, I don't have the opportunity to play. When they gave me the opportunity to play, I hit 400. For, Ch for Mendoza, convinced the general manager to send me back. He sent me back. Yeah, I went to the rookie league, he for home. See, if you know what's for Mendoza, Mendoza, a few houses, the general manager, Charlotte, and never have the opportunity to play. That's, it, that's, that's a beautiful story because here it is. You're thanking and you're appreciative of a minor league player, someone that was in a minor leagues that impacted your career to get to that next level, Tony. So that, that really is a, is a beautiful, beautiful story. You know, um, Tony, you know the feeling, and it happened for you 30 years ago, of having your number retired by the Minnesota Twins. Although Tony Oliva's number six was retired by the team he played his entire 15-year career, many continue to wonder, ask, and even plead, when will Roberto Clemente's number be retired throughout Major League Baseball? But Tony was quite adamant, and here is what he expressed on why this iconic number should be officially retired. There's been a movement for quite some time. So last year, it was the first time that Major League Baseball gave permission that the entire Pittsburgh uh, Pirates team wore 21, and select players throughout Major League Baseball wore 21, commemorative patch. So you know the feeling, and I ask you, what will your thoughts be about retiring Clemente's number like Jackie Robinson throughout Major League Baseball? I'd love to hear your thoughts. Oh, I think that's great. I think it will be, be a very, very special moment, a very special thing they can do it for Clemente and for the family and for baseball. Because Clemente, he was like, you know, like people say, Jackie Robinson, United States. Clemente was a special. Uh, he, when he died, he died doing something special. I think it will be beautiful if they can do that. They, if they do that, decide to do it, it will be very nice. And amazing to think that here it is, you play with him in the polo grounds, you play with him in Minnesota in the All-Star game, you got a chance to see him in spring training, and the memories that you have, and even that your wife got a chance to meet Clemente, it's something that you're never going to forget. And Tony Oliva, the person who I interviewed 20 years ago, 20 years later, you are here on the Talking 21 podcast. And Tony, I can't thank you enough. It was great seeing you in Long Island. I wanted to actually show you something, Tony. This is what Jeff Eisenberg gave to me almost 20 years ago. It was at a bat dinner, and he got you to sign this and personalize it to me. So Tony, 
you are in my collection right behind me. It's base, it's mainly Clemente, but I have Tony Oliva's autograph and a picture. You look pretty good there too, Tony, right? Oh, big time, man. Big time. You know, big time. But Tony, I can't thank you so very much. I can't thank the wonderful Anita for organizing this. And we had a great time, Tony. And I really hope that you will join us once again on the Talking 21 podcast dedicated to Roberto Clemente Walker. Thanks so much. Mil gracias, Tony, for joining us on another podcast episode. I want to especially thank your daughter, Anita, who set up the Zoom call for us. I really, really appreciated this and enjoyed our conversation. But before we wrap up our podcast, I'm sure you did enjoy it. Three words, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And make sure, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Talkin21Podcast. And yes, we're also on Facebook and YouTube. So keep listening for all our latest information about our episode drops. And a special thank you is in order to our executive producer, Ras Guevara, and especially our social media manager, Senor Basil. This is your host, Danny Torres, and be sure to follow me on Twitter at DannyT21. Tune in next time for our continued conversation about the great one who wore number 21. Adios.